Well, it is an honor and a privilege to be your director of youth ministry. But before I was your director of youth ministry, I worked for a different zoo, a real zoo in Utah. You see, at age 15, I started selling cotton candy, and when I left 20 years later to follow my calling to seminary, I had worked my way up to associate director in charge of fundraising and membership. Today, the zoo sits many miles away from where it first began in 1914, and there's a story behind that, so let me share it. It's the year 1930, and the zoo has an Asian elephant, Princess Alice. Princess Alice liked to find clever ways to escape her enclosure. She'd wander the streets of the city, plucking an odd assortment of clothes off the neighborhood clothesline. She'd throw them on her back and strut through the street like she was a runway model. When she got hungry, she'd stop and tear up the neighbor's garden, and any and all fences that were in her way, she'd take them down. By 1931, the city residents had had enough, and Mr. and Mrs. James A. Hogle stepped forward and donated 42 acres of land far away from the neighborhood clotheslines. Free from the tyranny of Princess Alice and her daily fashion shows, a grateful Salt Lake City named the zoo in their honor, Hogle Zoo. And I might be one of the few people who knows this story. After all, it was my job to share stories about the zoo with current and potential donors. And for me, even today, there's an importance to this origin story of how Hogle Zoo got both its name and found its place. But many don't know that story and even more have forgotten it with the passage of time. And it's made me think of the many times that God speaks to his people through the prophets, telling them the importance of his name and how it is to be respected and honored. They have forgotten the story told by Moses, recounted to them in Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to his fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. This morning, we'll continue the story of how the Lord our God pursues his treasured people for the sake of his name. We'll be looking at chapter 48 of Isaiah, and our focus this morning is going to be on God's name. Here in Isaiah, God tells us the importance of his name. God is committed to his name. God's name is an integral part of who he is. God's commitment to his name, God's commitment to himself, is great news for us. But before we read the chapter, let me set the scene of where we are in Isaiah. Cyrus, king of Persia, has defeated the Babylonians. The empire, the land once held by the Babylonians, is the land now held by the Persians. The Babylonians, you'll remember, conquered the southern kingdom of Judah and took the Israelites captive. They were forced to leave their house, their temple, their land, their friends. They were sent to a place, not their own. Now, through the work of the Lord, Cyrus is allowing the Israelites to return home. And you think this would be an occasion of great joy, but the tone of Isaiah 48 is one of confrontation. So let's look at Isaiah 48 now. That's on page 608 of the Black Pew Bibles. And if you have a children's Bible, that's on page 884. 
And it's a long chapter, but let's read all of it this morning. And once we're finished, keep the chapter open. We're going to be coming back to it several times this morning. So that's Isaiah chapter 48. Will you hear now God's holy and inerrant word? Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass, I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idols did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. Have you heard? Now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously. And that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grain. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, free from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. This is the word of the Lord. The first word of our passage is here. Here, O house of Jacob. God is confronting his people and he's calling them out. Why? The answer is at the end of verse 1. They swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. They're not listening to the Lord. That's why he's telling them to hear. And there's a lot of language in this passage about hearing listening and announcing and announcing is just a polite word for I'm going to make you hear me while I tell you what's happening. 
But there's more than a problem with hearing. They don't believe the work of the Lord. What's more, while they know the name of the Lord, they don't have a relationship with the Lord. To put this bluntly, they call themselves followers of the Lord, but they don't act like it. Look at verse 4. They are obstinate. Full disclosure, the last time I heard the word obstinate, it was used by my mother to describe me. So I looked it up. Obstinate means to stubbornly refuse to change your opinion or chosen course of action despite attempts to persuade you to do so. And isn't that the life story of a prophet? Isn't that what Isaiah has been attempting to do, to speak the word of the Lord to the house of Jacob, to persuade them to change their ways, to change the course of action, to stop being stubborn and to follow the Lord their God and have a relationship with him? Hearing the Lord is important, but hearing must also lead to a relationship with him. Through God's words and deeds and history, we are made to love God, to delight in him, to find our joy and peace in him. We seek him in prayer. We seek him when we love our neighbor, in acts of obedience, and in a life living by following God. All of this is part of having a relationship with God, and it's something the Israelites are lacking. It gets worse, though. They're described as having a neck of iron sinew and a forehead of brass. A brass forehead is simply shorthand for thick-headed, meaning dense, dumb, empty-headed, foolish. And if you have a neck of iron sinew, well, you're self-assured. You're trusting in the power of you and not in the goodness and provision of the Lord. None of these obstinate, neck of iron, forehead of brass are great descriptions of God's people. Yet the Israelites aren't alone. Many Christians today could be described by these same descriptions. Do you have an iron neck? Have you trusted in yourself and your ability to provide so much that you've lost your trust and reliance on the Lord? And where do you have a brass forehead? Honestly, I'm pretty thick-headed. And I'm foolish to think that I'm without sin and that I always see and hear the Lord's goodness in my life all the time. And I want to look down on the Israelites. But in many ways, I'm like them. And let's face it, we can all be obstinate, have brass foreheads, and be iron-necked people. But as God's people, we are not without hope. So let's dig a little deeper and see what this passage in Isaiah means for both the exiles coming to the promised land of Israel and what it means for us, exiles in this world waiting for our home in the new heaven and the new earth. When God asks us to listen, it's our duty. Listening to God, truly hearing God, is the heart of faith. But the Israelites don't seem to be putting much faith in God. Taking him for granted or trusting in idols is much more their speed. This is why the Lord says in verse 3, The former things I have declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. And continuing in verse 5, I announced them to you lest you say, My idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. God doesn't want idols taking credit for his work. And certainly some of the Israelites are crediting the work of God to their wooden and metal idols. But there's an even bigger problem. They're taking God for granted. And it's easy to take things for granted, but it's never good. So let me share an illustration I borrowed from John Piper. In an interview, a CEO is asked, after God, who is the most important person in your life? He answers, my vice president of finance, she's done so much for me over the years. And the interviewer says, well, what about your wife? The CEO recovers quickly and says, well, well of course. If that's a given, my wife is my bedrock. 
I'd argue that his wife didn't come to mind because she's not the most important person in his life. And how do you think his wife is going to feel? You can be certain that she is not going to say, I am so important, I am so loved, I am so honored and cherished that my husband never mentions me. I'm taken for granted and I love it. No, instead I think she's going to say, hey buddy, if I don't come to your mind to talk about, then I'm not important to you. And if you think I'm being honored by being taken for granted, then you're wrong because I'm not. There's an injustice in being taken for granted. Maybe you've been in that position before. In our example, who's going to speak up for the wife? Who will remind her husband not to take her for granted? Someone, perhaps a friend or family member, might come to her defense. But if God is taken for granted, who can speak up for him? There's no one greater than he. Only God can speak up for himself. And the Lord doesn't like being taken for granted especially not by his treasured people whom he calls his own. He is not glorified when he is taken for granted, and he's certainly not the most important person in the lives of his people who attribute his works to idols. Look at verse 6. Have you heard? Now see all this, and you will not declare it. The Israelites have the evidence. They've seen the works of God, and they still won't declare the deeds of the Lord, either because they're taking him for granted or they're trusting in his idols. That's why this passage is confrontational in nature. God will not be replaced by idols, nor will he be taken for granted. Through his prophet Isaiah, the Lord is calling people to faith, to acknowledge that there is only one God, their God, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And it is he who is working for their good, not the idols. He and he alone should be their MVP, their VIP, the ultimate in their life never taken for granted. God has reminded his people of what he's done in history. He's proved that he's God by doing the things he said he would do, even if his people took his work and deeds and treated them dismissively. God's character is to be good to you in spite of you. Even if you've taken him for granted, God is good to you. God's character is good news to you. Though we don't deserve it, God treats us as our treasured possessions as his treasured possession, and wants a relationship with us. Suppose you had a boss that paid you far beyond market rate, gave you bonuses that you didn't really deserve, treated you amazingly well, and was genuinely interested in your life beyond the office. You'd probably want to hang out with that person as much as possible, have lunch with them, go golfing, just hang out. And how reluctant are we to pursue a relationship with God? He isn't a boss, he's our good, good father and desires good things for us. Even when we take him for granted, he still desires good things for us. And how often do we share of his goodness with our neighbors and our families? How obstinate are we? You have heard, now see all this and you will not declare it. I sometimes feel the sting of those words knowing I haven't always proclaimed the glory of God. God has reminded his people of what he's done in history. He's recounting his character. As we'll see momentarily, his character is wrapped up in his name. He can be trusted to do the things he said he would do. And now God is going to reveal a new truth. Continue in verse 6. From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. The Lord wants his people to receive this new thing, this new truth in confidence. Hear it and receive it in faith. 
Their faithful confidence should be rooted in, should be based in the things the Lord has done in the past. They should be open to the new things, hearing them in faith, as faith comes from hearing. And one of these new things is the return from exile. This isn't normal. Exiled people don't return. Conquering kings don't stand on the border and wave goodbye to people they've taken exile. Yet, here's Cyrus doing this very thing. Look ahead at verse 14. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. Who is it that the Lord loves? It's Cyrus, this Persian king who's not even part of God's treasured people. He's doing a new thing. He's sending exiled people back home. And Cyrus's arm is against the Babylonians who are simply called the Chaldeans here. Now let's get this straight. This is the work of the Lord through Cyrus. Cyrus is simply the means by which the Lord works his purposes. But the question is now, will the exiles believe and act on the new things that are given to them? Cyrus and their return home are just the beginning of the new things. Or will they act as they have in the past, taking God for granted and giving credit to idols of wood and metal? We already know that the Israelites who swore by the name of the Lord and confessed the God of Israel did not do it in truth or right. Now God is telling them the cost of their rebellion. Let's look at verses 18 through 19. Oh, oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grain. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed before me. This rebellion came at a cost, a huge cost. They were driven from the promised land given them to God, and they were made exiles. When God called Abraham, he made a covenant with him. He made a promise. He said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of earth shall be blessed. Now, God hasn't given up on this problem. The Israelites may have their problems, but the old things that he announced to them, to his people, he did them, and they are not gone. They are not forgotten. He is still keeping his promises. And the new things are consistent with who God tells us he is. God doesn't change when these new things are revealed. It just reveals more of who he is and more of his love and care for us. These new things, they're unprecedented. And that's great news for us. And even though the Israelites have forgotten the stories and don't know him in truth or right, God isn't giving up. New things are coming. Grace to rebellious people. That's us, by the way. We're sinners and rebellious people too. Grace to rebellious people is not plan B. Grace was never plan B. Grace is the very nature of God. Now hold this thought about God's grace for a minute. We're going to come back to it. So why can God make and keep these promises to Abraham? How can God use Cyrus, a Persian king, to bless his people? It's because, as Pastor Mark showed us last week, that he is one God. He is one creator God. He is one sovereign God. God's character and nature is unchangeable, and we're reminded of that here in our passage. Look at verse 12. I am he. I am the first I am the last. He is one God, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end. 
And in verse 13, we see the God of creation. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. Finally, he's a sovereign God. Look at verse 17. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Now, this is a lot to remember, but there's a shorthand phrase to remember it. For my name's sake. God's name reveals his character. It reveals who he is and how he relates to us in this one phrase. For my name's sake sums up all that God is. Now, I've saved the best of this chapter for last. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. I have to admit, I haven't always appreciated the immensity of these verses. They're easy to breeze by when you're reading this chapter. But now I've come to see it as one of the greatest statements in the Bible about God. And I'm thankful, too, for the writings of Ray Ortland, who's helped me with some of the finer points here. These three verses demonstrate to us God's character, and God's character is wrapped up in his name. God cares about his name because it represents who he is, and who he is matters. Through God's name, we understand how perfect, holy, true, patient, just, merciful, kind, long-suffering he really is. And that's not an exhaustive list. When we see how holy and perfect the name of God truly is, only then can we begin to grasp the immensity of God and the scope of his astounding love for his people. Let's look again at verse 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not be cut off. God is concerned for the sake of his name in order to show his reputation for being true to his revealed character in both the former things and in the new things. God's character and his name are the same. He shows the Israelites, indeed he shows the whole world that he is God. And he shows them this not by destroying the Israelites, but by loving them and embracing them forever in spite of their disobedience. He's not going to cut them off. He's not going to give up on them. He's not going to give up on us. If he were to give up on them, if he were to give up on us, he would have to stop being God. He loves us for reasons that only he can understand in his divine logic. When God says in verse 10, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of afflictions. It means he's refining us, but not to the point of destruction. Silver is left in the crucible until all the other junk metals are burned away. But in this analogy, there's no silver in Israel. To leave them in the refiner's fire would reduce them to nothing. It would destroy them. And if Israel, re 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 if Israel were reduced to nothing, if the refining fire of God burned them up, Israel would be defeated. And the defeat of grace to sinners would be a defeat to God. God has the power to make and keep covenant promises to Abraham and his offspring Israel. In fact, God's holiness integrity require it. Why? For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. When God says for my own sake, God is doubling down on who he is. He shows his eternal commitment to being our God forever. And this is great news for us. It's our assurance that he is the same yesterday as he is today, as he will be tomorrow. 
He will not let his name be profaned to be anything less than holy because that would diminish the display of his glory and his compassion and mercy. Personally, in the past, I found the languages in these verses a little unsettling. When God says, my glory, I will not give to another. Is he hogging all the glory? Is there no glory to share? Must the rest of creation stand in his shadow? But here's what I've learned. God's glory is amazing. And I don't really have words in my vocabulary to explain this glory. But I'm going to try. Glory is exaltation. It's magnificent. It's splendor greater than the sun. It's worshipful praise. It's honor due God alone. And that's the key. Honor due God alone. Who else should get God's glory? Who else is deserving of it? If God gave his glory to another, by definition, that person would be above God. God would be second best. It doesn't work. No one can be God but God alone. He alone deserves the glory. My glory I will not give to another. Not to us, but to your name alone be all the glory. And if we don't give the God glory, he still has glory. He doesn't need us. He alone is owed glory. And if we don't give it to him, the defect is in us, not in the Lord. But here's what I find unsettling about this passage in a good way. This passage takes my breath away. It makes sense to us that God would judge sinners. That's obvious. But what's amazing here is that God would welcome sinners, pursue sinners, delay judgment of sinners, save them through the work of his only son and adopt them into his family. That is remarkable. Remember I said we'd come back to grace? It's going to get crazy. God's grace is going to get even bigger. In the coming chapters of Isaiah, we will be introduced to a servant who is coming, a suffering servant. This servant is part of the new of which the Lord speaks. Now, of course, this suffering service is Jesus who will lay down his life for us. He shows us mercy because of who he is. His name shows his character. And if we were to ground our identity in ourselves, we would come to ruin. We cannot do anything for the sake of our name or the sake of our glory. But in Jesus, our true identity is found. Jesus is the solid rock on which we build our lives. There's this amazing exchange where Jesus takes our sin and gives us his perfect righteousness. And at the same time, he gives us new names. Beloved, mine, desired, forgiven, treasured. And Jesus' name, his is the name above all other names. And we become what we worship. If we worship wooden and metal images, we become that. If you worship money, you become a flimsy piece of paper or a jingling bunch of coins. And once the money is gone, you're no longer valuable. If you worship status and collect prestigious titles, professor, CEO, vice president, associate director of the zoo, if you lose these titles, what do you have? Nothing. God's name is the only thing that makes us more alive, not less alive. When we worship Jesus, we become what we truly are. We become his We are made a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. But there's a warning in Isaiah 48 about what we worship. If we don't worship God, if we refuse the grace of God freely offered to us in Christ, if we do that, we will deny the very nature and character of God. In verse 22, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. You will find no peace in your own name. You will find no peace in your own glory. You will find no peace in your own character. 
This is the logical conclusion for rejecting grace. And I want to end this morning by returning to where we began with stories. The story of God and his people didn't end when the Israelites failed to worship him in truth and right. It didn't end in exile either. Many Israelites returned home to the land God gave them. Our stories are not finished either. As your youth director, I often hear stories of your sons and daughters, your nieces and nephews, your grandsons and granddaughters, your moms and your dads, and dear friends who have walked away from the Lord. And I want to tell you their stories aren't finished. The Lord has a tender heart. He shows that he is God, not by destroying those who have wandered from the fold, but by loving and embracing them. This is his glory. Keep praying for these treasured people. Show them Jesus through your love and actions because you have seen and heard of the glory of God. So share that news with others. And maybe you're worried that God can't use you. But if God can use Cyrus, a Persian king, that's not even his people, God can certainly use you. Nothing can keep God from fulfilling his promise to us. But it won't be your glory when the lost comes home. It will be his alone and in keeping with his name and all that it represents. And for those of you that are on the fence about accepting Jesus or you're on the fence about returning home to Jesus, God has shown himself to be faithful in history. Nothing has stopped him in pursuing you, not even the death of his only son, Jesus. You can trust in the Lord's name. God's commitment to himself, God's commitment to be God is his assurance to you. His assurance that he is holy, good, loving, and desires to number you among his treasured people. And for all of us who love Jesus, through his name, God proves that he is God by his grace to us. Grace is the very nature of who God is. Let's pray. Father God, all the glory does belong to you. Father, it is amazing to think that you have kept your promises, that your name reflects the character of who you are, loving, good, that you bring us joy, that you bring us peace in your name. Lord, would we be praying for those who do not know Jesus? Lord, would we be looking to you each day for your provision? Lord, would we remember that grace is the very nature of who you are? And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.